Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Well, it's been quite a week in politics, with Chief Executive C.Y. Lang's announcement that he won't run for a second term. So I thought I'd have a bit of a political theme too. Where the Court of Final Appeal is now housed was from 1985 to 2011, the home of the Legislative Council. Built in 1912, it was first the Supreme Court, with holding cells in the basement. While the building was not designed as a parliament, veteran political reporter and broadcast journalist Francis Moriarty says it was far more accessible to the media than the current building at Tamar. I joined him in Central at the former Legislative Council building for a wander around the corridors. Right, this is now the lawyer's common room, but this doorway that we're about to go through here up on the second floor of, of the old Legislative Council building is where the press room was. This room was a long room, and on the left-hand side was a place where legislators would come and hold press conferences, and with some big tables down the middle and work booths at the end and on the side where you could sit and do your stories. And with a further back room, which at one point used to have TVs in it, uh, and then later that got taken over by the translation service. Uh, so it's an entirely different configuration uh, than it was before. But interestingly, of course, this was a court building, became a legislature, and has moved back to being a court structure once more. Um, in terms of architects, the floor is exactly the same as it was before. This kind of burnished red tile with 1915 to 20-ish designs in the pattern. I say 15 to 20 because actually the building started in around 1912. World War I intervened, and a lot of the materials to build this building and other buildings in Hong Kong was held up on the docks in Britain until the war was over because the ships were needed there. When the war ended, these materials were brought out here and the buildings were finished. So interestingly, styles changed during that period of time. So they were, they were building buildings with a certain interior design and coloration and configuration of tiles that was actually from more than a decade earlier. <laughs> so uh, it was a little bit out of time, uh, oddly enough, uh, aesthetically, but still a very lovely building. The, you can look up above us here and you can see these curving archways um, this is exactly the same as it was when it was the legislature. Um, the dentals along the doorway uh, are also the same as they were before. Uh, but in, when the center of the building, which is enclosed, that used to be the chamber with a very, very high ceiling. And there were places where the public could sit on either end, uh, the north or the south of the chamber, with big chandeliers that, that hung down to illuminate the space. That area is now filled with court area. But we used to have to sometimes, if you wanted to get a, a particular legislator or government official, you'd have to run from the press room here. You couldn't go through the chamber because that was for members only, right? The antechamber was, was on the uh, western side of the building. You'd have to run down the hallway all the way the length of the building on the eastern side and then try to get the people uh, as they were going out either the steps or there was a small lift on that side of the building and we would run like hell to try to get people and get get quotes oftentimes chasing them down the stairs and out of the building <laughs> there's also doors that lead outside to an area that i i always thought should have tables and umbrellas you have these wonderful patios that are outside but we were never able to use them the only person who ever went outside was 
when he was president, or actually when he was a, legislate, a legislator and then as president, was Andrew Wong, because he was a heavy smoker. And he would sometimes sneak out onto the balcony <laughs> and light up. <laughs> uh, but he was the only person who was able to do that. The antechamber is at the western end of the building, and we'll take a walk in there in a second to see what it was like. But there was a big gong. A gong? Middle, a gong in the middle of the antechamber. And whenever it was time to call the legislators to come back to the chamber, um, someone would w walk over and hit this giant gong. It must have been about four feet in, in diameter. And, and you'd hear this boom through the, through the whole building, and you knew Is that it like was... like that at the start of those old films? Yes, it, very much like that, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, it hung on a big wooden uh, uh, support, and the cloth-covered... Uh, thing that you hit it with, the little hammer, whatever, you, whatever one calls yeah, that. We're not journalists, That's are we? That's right. It hung alongside it. And, and, <laughs> the thingamajiggy. One of the thingamajiggy, thank you, is it's known scientifically. Uh, someone would come over and, and whack that, that thing in the middle, and that told everybody that it was time to get back into the chamber. Were you ever tempted to whack it just to put the legislators out of whack? Uh, I wouldn't do it while the legislators were here, but there were times when we were allowed in there for various functions or whatever, and, and, and I did take the hammer and make a little boom just, just, just to hear what it sounded like. So would that be now currently with all the filibustering, would the gong be... No, you now have an, an automatic okay. thing that rings. It has horrible. It has no charm whatsoever <laughs> to it. Uh, but it can be heard throughout the buildings on different floors. In, in the past, that wasn't necessary. Um, and, and there were always, and there still are, young government minions who were planted around the building at every possible corner and near the restrooms and whatever, so that if legislators are needed, they will run and grab them and escort them and be sure that they get to where they're supposed to be so that the government doesn't lose key votes. Uh, and they, they have pictures of all the legislators with, you know, they know who they're supposed to be watching and who, who they get. So, I mean, you cannot go to the restroom in the legislature as a legislator with, without somebody knowing exactly where you are, just in case you might be needed. Of course, that doesn't stop people from occasionally walking out of the chamber at inopportune times uh, uh, or, or getting onto a lift and cutting it too short. Uh, but that was not an issue in this building because you only had one little lift and it was one of the slowest lifts in the Western civilization. So, so unless you really needed to take the lift up, you would, you would walk and, uh, and you were followed everywhere. As, as a legislator. So it, it was a bit of another era, but I have to say it was quite a nice era. We're now walking through a corridor that connects the building from north to south. This would have been impossible to do under the old arrangement. We, where we're standing right now would be, there was a little hallway that ran, and you could turn left to go into the antechamber, or you would to turn right to go into the main chamber. But right now, as members of the public, we're walking right, right through. And, and you would not have been allowed to do that unless you were a government official or uh, a guest, a lobbyist or something that, that was allowed in. Uh, then you could you could walk through. And would they have normally? I mean, it's very quiet today because, of course, the you know behind the closed doors um, are courts here now. But mm -hmm. um, would there have been a lot of hubbub going on? Yeah, there would have been hubbub. You'd have government officials going in and out of the chamber. You'd have people being grabbed and lobbied, you, and you could see that happening out, out in the hallway. And then you'd have people running off going, oh my God, it's Francis. Yes, it was. Something like that. <laughs> Actually, what they would do is they would look out the other side and they would see knots of reporters with 
television lights, you know, and, and, and they would either try to avoid it or they would move toward it because that's, of course, their natural, you know, it's kind of bees to honey. Yes, you'd have had two different types of legislator, wouldn't you? You, you certainly did have, yes, those who avoided and those who engaged. We've, we, we've just walked through uh, what would have been past the chamber and into an area uh, with a stairwell that goes down and out of the building or upstairs to the third floor. Um, this is an area where we would try to trap people <laughs> coming and going out and, and try, to, try to get quotes. And there was a, a room off to the side over here on the, uh, on the western side of the building, a little room where uh, government officials would gather. Uh, because when there were official members, they would they would go inside there uh, and uh, plot their strategies or uh, lean on someone or whatever it was that they that, that they had to do. But this area here was uh, opened. Uh, there were doors, but they were per permanently opened, and and uh, th that was another area where you would try to conduct an interview or or snag someone, uh, and then going transverse across the building. Uh, it looks almost exactly as it did in, in those days. Um, and on the left-hand side, uh, as we're standing here facing towards uh, Cheater Garden, uh, there were rooms that were used by committees. She would have committee hearings uh, usually open. Uh, that came later. We can discuss that later. But uh, uh, there were, there were <laughs> the security uh, radio we just heard was also a feature of the old building. Uh, but these were rooms where committees would, would meet, sometimes closed door, uh, and usually after 1991, um, open open to the public. But you're right, it's a beautiful building, isn't it? Yeah, yeah they're now used as court chambers. Um, uh, but they would have been then used for, for uh, committees. One interesting feature of this building that is not at all evident is that some of the original cells in which prisoners were held are still downstairs in the basement and they've kept at least some of them um, as part of the history of the building but you were not supposed to access that at the time that this was a legislature uh, that was a, a basement used for whatever so uh, reporters weren't kept in there we, they would like to have put them in there, I think, if they could have. Uh, but no, they were they were not put in there. But it was a reminder of the original function of the building. And of course, during the Second World War, there were people who were tortured down there. It definitely was used uh, for prisoners under the British. And and uh, as long as this building was used as, as a court, they would be held there. When their time came to appear in, in the court, they would be brought up with guards uh, to make their appearance in, in the court. Um, that's a little so bit. So was it more of a holding cell and they were kept at Victoria it, Prison it, at other times? They, they would have been held at Victoria Prison or at some other facility elsewhere in Hong Kong and brought down here for the trial and held there. Um, just as in, in today's courthouse, there are facilities inside the courthouse at Admiralty where prisoners are held and brought in when their time to appear in court arises. As we look up here, just over the tram tracks, at Devo Road, you've got, uh, of course, the old Court of Final Appeal, which was originally the French Missionary Building. Do you know what that's going to be used for? That's going to be used for an international arbitration centre. Um, a bit of a controversy about that, but that decision was made. Now, one thing that's kind of missing from this building, if I can put it that way, um, there are still a few places you can see, but during the renovation of this building to become a courthouse again, 
There are a number of places where this building was scarred during the Battle of Hong Kong when the Japanese came in and there was fighting going on. But many of the places where bullets had struck and damaged the building have now been uh, filled in and, and graded over. That's so a shame, really. It is, because an important part of history uh, was lost. I mean, there was some very heavy fighting going on. And if you cross the street from this building and go over to the HSBC building, you, of course, have the two lions, the two brass lions, which still bear holes in them from the firing that was going on uh, during the uh, invasion and, and uh, subsequent occupation. So in one or two places here, you can still, where it's kind of out of, out of sight and difficult to reach, you'll still see some uh, uh, damage to the building. Uh, but a lot of the evident damage that was more at street level uh, was covered up during the, the restoration or renovation of the building. We're now on the back side of the building where there's a parking area. But at one time, before my time in Hong Kong, but this this was actually a, a thoroughfare. And buses came through here uh, at, at, at one time, uh, but that got closed off and and has, even during the LegCo days, uh, uh, has become an area for, for parking. Now, of course, it's parking for... I know. Trips. I mean, this is the first... It's funny that I've walked past here and I've gone to Cheddar Garden. I haven't really paid attention to here. What I remember was... I think it was during uh, the demonstration for the high-speed rail a few years ago, probably 2011, and uh, about the, the high-speed rail uh, coming in from uh, Guangzhou. And I remember that you had this pro-democracy side of things on this side, and over here we had the more pro-government. And what astonished me at the time was that there was rather unnecessarily in my view about a hundred I came round the corner and along this stretch here where there's just a few vans parked now was about a hundred uh, police in riot gear well they didn't know what to expect uh, keeping the two sides apart probably not a bad idea uh, and uh, where we're standing now there are these areas that are covered with arches that you can walk through which is a very I think a very useful style in this kind of climate because when it rains or whatever people can gather they can walk they can and and, and you're covered um, many buildings were like this in Hong Kong and at one point in order to uh, increase vehicular traffic and allow developers fuller area for square footage um, these kind of passages were eliminated on buildings all over Hong Kong so they could get their their square footage right up to the uh, right up to the curb behind you where you're standing right now it's a corner of the building uh, as you can hear there's trams in the background right across the, the the old original Bank of China building but if you look you can see places that have been filled in here with with cement and a large square of stone that's been inserted here and there and those are places where there was damage to the building from the fighting uh, during uh, World War II against against the Japanese. And occasionally here and there in the building, not on these windows but on some others, you'll see regularly uh, placed holes that have been filled in. And those would have been where there were bars on the building in its original uh, heyday. Is that right? A court, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure that these shutters on here now are exactly the original placement of the original shutters. Because many shutters in the old days would have... Uh, uh, swung outwards, and but a lot of 
shutters to Stosis, for example, in the Foreign Correspondents Club, which is exactly the same era as this building. If you look at old pictures of the FCC, shutters went outwards towards the street, but glass was later put in, and the the shutters now swing in yes. toward toward the interior of the building. So uh, something similar may have been done here. And on the night that you were referring to of the of the train demonstration, I spent a lot of that night in the chamber and outside. You had what I thought of at the time as young ninja, dressed up in black, beating a very slow drum, and they would walk about three steps, get down on their knees, bend down and touch their head to the ground, get back up silently, and 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 work their way around the building again and again and again. And I remember thinking. That is extremely strenuous. It takes a lot out of you to go down on your knees, bend, get up, stand up, walk, and do it again. And they did it for, I think, more than 24 hours in a row. I mean, they get, they would get spelled by somebody at some point. But I thought, and their their point to do that, they were protesting the the uh, uh, high speed railway. Um, it was a very dramatic gesture to do and to start ahead of the debate well ahead of the debate and they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and I thought this is not only against this this railway this is training up these people are building discipline they're building camaraderie when you act on something whatever it may be and not just talk about it but you physically put yourself out it changes you as a person you are never the same after you do that and these young people will never be the same for what they deliberately put themselves through and designed and organized. It was very powerful, very effective, and sometimes the most powerful thing you can do or say is silence. And all they had was that rhythmic, constant beat. And I'm sure that those people have developed a bond that's going to carry them, uh, not only through many other demonstrations, but but through life. We're, we're, we're a little further down in what's now the parking area behind the, the courthouse, the former legislative council building, and we're at a doorway that officials used to come in and out of. So if the governor's car pulled in, for example, it would pull right over here near where we're standing, and he would get out. And, and if at all possible, uh, we would be waiting with our microphones and our notebooks. And, and uh, I did any number of interviews with, with Chris Patton, as many of us did, but I, I would occasionally catch him here by himself. And we do an interview uh, right here on, on the outside. Um, not something that's likely to happen much anymore. No, that's true. Yeah. Um, so you came here in 1989 on a very momentous day. I, I arrived by coincidence. Uh, I, I flew in from France. And I arrived on the day that Hu Yaobang died. Hu Yaobang was a figure in China who was perceived as being one of the few people who was not corrupt. When he died, young people began showing up to place flowers at the temple to the uh, monument to the people's heroes. And that demonstration, which was against corruption, grew into what became the 1989 Tiananmen Square uh, protest that ended in, in a bloody crackdown and, and uh, numbers of people, hundreds, possibly thousands, uh, who died at that time. So, yeah, that's that was my arrival in Hong Kong. Uh, I had, had a competing job offer in Germany, and if I had any idea that six months later the Berlin Wall was going to fall down, <laughs> I might have made a different job decision, but I actually made my decision to come to Hong Kong while standing at the Berlin Wall with, with no intention that... Uh, I, I would someday be in a monument on a historical show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a grade one monument. <laughs> no chance of being knocked down. The building 
has a wonderful charm, this old legislative council building, and a certain humanity of, of scale, accessibility. It's right in the middle of, of Central. It had the right combination of openness, and, and of course, there needed to be some security aspects. But you look at the building and where it's placed, how secure ultimately could this building be? So it's, it's an enormous change in atmosphere and aesthetics and function between this building and the one that's uh, been built down at Tamar. I mean, some things at Tamar are an improvement, but I think if you ask any of the reporters who worked in the old Legislative Council and who then worked in the new Legislative Council, which one they would prefer overwhelmingly, they would say, let's go back to the old building. Uh, you were just in touch with people, uh, with your colleagues, with the legislators. It felt like someplace something was happening. Whereas, and, and it was transparent. It really was transparent. When you sat upstairs in the gallery looking down on the members below you, you could go, psst, Martin, psst, Emily, psst, you know, uh, Chung Yuk Singh, and they'd look up at you and you could say, can I go talk with you in the hallway? And, and, and they'd usually say yes and come outside and chat with you about whatever it was. That's not going to happen in the Legislative Council building that we have today. The new Legislative Council building was designed to give the appearance of transparency, the appearance of openness. But in fact, uh, as we knew when it first opened and the reporters had physical clashes with the security guards over the question of access, uh, and they've since taken in the new building an area that was intended to be just passageway, and they've installed tables and chairs where the reporters have a place to work that's near the legislators. But they had us, uh, when they opened it up, uh, so far away that you, by the time you tried to run from the press room out to where the members were, they'd be out the building and gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was a, a, a very big change, is something that's had to be worked through. Uh, that new building has its features, but it's, it's nowhere near as successful as this building was, even though this old legislative council building was not designed yes, to be a council. I ironically, the building with the jail facilities inside and the courts became uh, a very good building in, in which to, uh, to hold the legislature. And uh, many of us spoke with, with then-President Rita Fan about the design for the new building. She went over and visited Macau, and we all went over. And I, when I saw the building in Macau, the legislature, what was then the new building in Macau for the legislature, I thought, uh-oh, this is what we're going to get. And it is indeed what we got. Modern-looking, spacious, gives a certain appearance of grandeur, but from a reporter's point of view, from a public point of view, low functionality. So when you used to, as you say, you used to be able to peer over and to to any of these uh, legislators. I mean, Emily is uh, an interesting one. I would imagine that she was Emily Lau. Um, she would have been one of the ones that engaged the press. Oh, Emily has always engaged the press. She's an ex-reporter. She worked for the BBC. So engaging the press is, is, is a natural thing for her to do. But I, 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 there were very few members who, who avoided the press in those days. Of course, it was, it was a big change. You only had a couple of functional constituency members, Martin Lee and Sito Wah being two of the first. And it wasn't until 1991 that then-Governor David Wilson allowed uh, 19, and negotiated with China, and 19 members were, I believe the number was 19 seats directly elected. Um, and divided up in, in, in Hong Kong at that time. So uh, that, that changed everything. And within, I would say, two years 
after the legislature was in place, that, that first legislature elect, with elected members, a big change happened, and that was that committee meetings opened up. Previously, all committee meetings, except the Wednesday full chamber meeting, took place behind closed doors. Reporters were not allowed in. We sat in the press room twiddling our fingers and reading GIS dispatches on pieces of paper in those days. Or did did you just have GIS dispatch on the outside and you were really reading Hello Magazine? (laughs) I'm not uh, British, so I did not look at Hello Magazine, I can tell you. (laughs) But across the street was Beaconsfield House, which has since been torn down. And GIS, as it was then known, now Information Services Department, ISD, uh, had a room where anybody in the public could go and, and it, a, like a, a library, and you could go and see what the GIS dispatches were for that day on pieces of paper, and they had them held on a clipboard, and you could go read through. And reporters, if, whenever they had a chance, would run across the, to Beacon's Fieldhouse and go through and see what press releases had been put out during the day to catch up on, on stories and pick up quotes or whatever. Uh, and, and uh, of course, when that got torn down, not only did that facility go, but something else went, and that is that there were police mess, there were civil service mess, and reporters could go in and get a cheap meal and use the mess. The police would have to invite you in, but that would happen. And so you had a, a venue where civil servants and reporters would meet informally, and meeting over tea and food is always the way to get things done. And sometimes one of the police would say, right, come on and meet some of the guys. And, and you'd go inside and you'd meet officers that you never would have met otherwise. You'd build up an association. And that's how contacts and things work. And when Biggest Fieldhouse went and other places like it, that level of contact disappeared. And I think because that was lost, it's part of the reason that a certain level of tension and sometimes even hostility has entered into the relationship. There wasn't someplace elsewhere that could be broken down and ameliorated in some way, and you could form a friendly relationship with people. And they could build up a certain trust in you that they could maybe point you in a direction and they weren't going to get burned. So I think that over time, certain things happen kind of accidentally. Um, certain things were conscious. When C.H. Tung came in as the first chief executive, one of the first things the new government did, even before he was actually in office, is they began building a fence that surrounded the central government offices on Lower Albert Road. And I asked Chris Patton once during a trip to Europe that I was covering about that issue. And he said, oh, security was always after us. This is after he had left office, I have to say. Um, security was always after us to build a fence because they felt that, that too, too much public access and all this sort of thing. And he said, but of course we didn't. And I said, why not? And Patton said, because it sends all the wrong message. And I think that the, the, the colonial government... Being a colonial government, uh, being an estranged party that by accident of history uh, ended up having responsibility, taking responsibility for Hong Kong, uh, ruled things in some ways with a, with a gentle touch. They didn't always know they had things right. They had to be sure they were right. And I think that keeping uh, accessibility and transparency and openness um, worked. From, uh, from a certain point of view. But the incoming power felt, we don't need that. 
we know certain things that are going on. Uh, and when the Fed started going up, I asked a longtime reporter, Chinese reporter, what she thought of it. And she said, they already know that they're going to have to do things that piss people off. And I think she hit it spot on. Uh, and, and so part of the difficulty that the incoming government has, and it's of its own making, is that it's, it's, it's allowed security to get its way. It's put security as a priority. And I think it's had the effect of distancing people from their government in a way to which they were not accustomed. And that's come back to bite. American broadcast journalist and political reporter Francis Moriarty at the former Legislative Council building. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>